Okay, I'm glad you're here. We've got a, a bunch of ideas to discuss today, and um, and uh, I, let me just begin with just a couple of thoughts, and then uh, God willing, we'll be able to discuss um, some some ideas about humility, what what humility is. But but uh, there there's some other ideas I want to share first. So let's uh, let's just jump in. So this is something that uh, kind of came to me on Shabbos and. It's a, a kavana, a special sort of holy intention to have in your mind. Uh, I guess this is for the men. Uh, regarding, regarding when uh, you say Shema and you gather the, the four corners of your, of your tzitzis. So everyone knows that uh, we have a special mitzvah to wear a, a talis um, and, and each, and, or tzitzis on any four-cornered garment. And there's a whole... I mean, it's so deep, the subject itself. I just want to touch on one aspect of it. But let me just, just tell you one thing about the tzitzis. Um, the word tzitzit, uh, the sages say, has a gematria of 613. The way that works is the word tzitzit itself is 600. And then there are five knots and eight strings which add up to 13. So that's 613. So in that way, the, the sages say that you, you look at the, the tzitzis and then it reminds you of the entire Torah to keep the Torah. So, so now one of the holy customs that we have is that when we say Shema, we take the four corners of you know, all, the, all, the, all the tzitzis, all the long strands, and we gather them all up in our, in our left hand and then we put that against our heart. And then we cover our eyes and we say, Shema Yisrael, Shema Lukin, Shema Chad. We declare the oneness of God. So, with that in mind, I just want to offer just something special to have in mind. Um, and that's, you know, Kabbalistically speaking, when we look at the, a map of the cosmos, there are four, four worlds. Um, meaning to say that the entire universe is 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 understood in in terms of different different neighborhoods, increasingly holy neighborhoods, if you will. I mean, they're not four separate universes. It's just it's all one. It's all within the oneness of God. And yet you have this world, Olam Hasiyah, and then it goes up and up all the way till you get to the top, which is Atzilus, which is just beyond, 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 beyond. But um, in other words, if you think of this seamless flow of the physical becoming ever more spiritual along the same continuum. These are just different landmarks. These four different worlds are different landmarks, sort of charting the flow from, depending how you look at it, from that which is just light without end, like orange self coming down to the physical, or if you want to look at it the other way, from the physical becoming more and more and more spiritual. Anyway... But, but in the language of, of the Torah, there, there are four, four worlds. So one thing to have in mind when you're saying Shema, when you're declaring the oneness of God, is you take the four corners of the tzitzis, which are correlating with the four worlds, you see, and then you put them all into one. And remember, when you say Shema, you're declaring the oneness of God. So these four strands, each correlates with a different letter of the yud ke vav of the name of Hashem. So again, you're, you're unifying Hashem's name. You're unifying all these disparate, disparate elements of the world. 
all, the entire universe. You're holding it in your hand. And what do you do? You put those four strands over your heart, which has four ventricles. Okay? And now, each strand, we said, each sitsis, each corner has eight strings. So that's eight times four. That's 32. So right now you're holding 32 strings, which is the gematria lab, which is heart. Right? So you're taking all of these. In other words, you're, you're unifying Hashem's name. You're unifying all the disparate elements of the entire universe. You're putting it over your heart. And with all of your heart, with the four ventricles of your heart, with all of your heart, you're declaring the oneness of God. There's nothing else. There's nothing else in the entire world. That's what we're saying. We're saying that there is no power other than you. That's, that's one of our intentions when we say the Shema. And that we're, we're recognizing that. We're recognizing that oneness and we're saying that we, we are taking on the Omahu Shemayim. We're taking on the yoke of heaven. We're, we understand that there's a master above us. And that it's all you, God. Everything belongs to you. The whole world. Um, let me just make a, a PS for the women. Um, you know, we, we sometimes uh, sometimes it's confusing, especially in contemporary society, that in an age of um, equality, that there are some mitzvahs that men have that women don't have, and there's some mitzvahs that women have that that men don't have, and it seems that that everything should be equal. That's how we understand it in our in our in our Western uh, ideal. And um, let me just share with you my understanding of it, because chas v'shalom, God forbid, anyone should think that the Torah is uh, discriminatory uh, in any way. See, we have to make a distinction between um, social justice and matters of the soul. In terms of social justice, if you were to say that... that, um, the Torah says that men get paid more than women for the same office job. That, that would be very problematic. But that's not what's going on here. There's no, there's no social ideal that's being undermined here. God is describing what each of our souls need. And the way I, I understand it is, imagine someone who has, say, high cholesterol, right? And someone is taking Lipitor, right? That's a famous anti cholesterol drug, someone's taking Lipitor against, in order because they've got this high cholesterol. And then someone else comes up to them and says, no fair, you're on medication and I'm not on medication? I should, have to, I should be able to take Lipitor also. And it's like, no, you don't need Lipitor. You do not have high cholesterol. So men and women need different fixings. Men and women have different natures to their souls and need different things. So for a woman to say, how can it be that you have that? I need that. You don't have that problem that needs fixing. You know, so, so it's just, it's a different, it's a different paradigm. Um, so God gives us what we need and the tools that we need to fix our soul. Okay. So, so moving on, another thought. Um, uh, we, we've been discussing... We've been discussing the four-pronged shin, this mysterious remnant of the first set of tablets that ascended to heaven that we still have on our, on our tefillin, right? There's the four-pronged shin if you look at it. So I don't want to go further into that, 
although if you're interested in that subject, because it's a, it's, to me it's totally fascinating, I gave a talk on it called The Mysterious Four-Pronged Shin. You're probably wondering, how did I come up with that title? Um, no, just, just joking. Uh, so, anyway, it's, it, it's a, this is a related topic that, that I came across uh, while researching that, and I just wanted to share it with you. So, so it says in the Gemara and Pesachim, I think it's uh, Pei Zion, uh, 87, if you want to look it up. The, the sages teach that, that, that right before Moshe smashed the tablets, the luchos, because we were worshipping the, the golden calf, the letters on the luchos flew up, flew up to Shemaim, flew up to heaven. Now, let's um, remind ourselves what the letters looked like on the tablets, okay? You see, they were, each letter was punched clear through the tablets. Alright? And so, so the, the, the letters themselves were made out of air, if you understand what I'm saying, because they were punched through and through the tablets. So, now with that in mind, it says that all the letters ascended to heaven before the eyes of the people, in front of the eyes of the people. Now, if you think about this for a moment, all of a sudden it will kick in. Wait a second! The letters were made out of air, and they all ascended. How did the people see the letters? So this was, this was a miracle, that they saw the letters ascending, even though they were completely made out of air. They were invisible, and yet they saw them. That's the Marasha, by the way. The H. Yosef says something. I guess he has an issue with that, and we're going to try to explain that in a moment. Like, what did they see, and how did they see it, right? Because it's a deep idea. He says that, no, a little piece of the stone outline of each of the letters also went up, so they were able to see the letters. Now, that's a bit of a letdown after you've just heard the Marasha, right? It's like, okay, well, I like the Marasha, but... So, okay, what the Marasha says, again, is that, remember what the first luchos, the first tablets, look like. The letters were punched, punched is my word, but uh, written, however you want to say it, through and through, meaning to say that... Um, if you, if you were to hold the tablets in front of your face, say, I could see you through the letter Shin, say, or through each of the letters. I, I could see you because the letters went through and through. So in that way, the letters were made out of air. Yes. Now, when the letters ascended to heaven, it says that we all saw the letters. So how can you see the letters if they're all made out of air? That's, that's, that's the question. But it was a miracle. We all saw the letters. So... I'd like to offer a suggestion. You can, you can come up with your own explanation. But I'd like to offer a, an explanation of, of, of what happened. But, but the teaching itself, in and of itself, is just wonderful. But, but let's, let's maybe try to explain it a little bit. Um, so, so let's just keep the context in mind for a moment right now. Why did this miracle happen then? And the answer is because, remember, what, what, what is it that we had done? We had worshipped the golden calf. 
So this was in response, the letters flying up to heaven. And the resulting miracle that we were able to see the letters, even though they were invisible, I guess, is another way of saying it, um, was somehow connected to the fact that we had worshipped the golden calf. Or that this miracle was a response to the fact that we had worshipped the golden calf. So now we've got a little bit more of a context of when it happened and and maybe a a little bit now of uh, traction in terms of understanding why God did this then and maybe what what it was supposed to evoke in us. Um, So so let me just um, try to explain it in the following way. There's a beautiful teaching, one of my favorite teachings. It's from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he says like this, the, the Medrash says that when Hashem spoke at Mount Sinai, that there was no echo. Um, and the way the Rebbe explains it is, he says that, you see, what, what are sort of like the, the physics of an echo? What happens? You're, a person's voice waves bounce off something that it's not. Meaning that as long as the voice waves are traveling through the air, that's fine. But as soon as it hits something that it isn't, like a wall or the side of a mountain or something like this, it bounces off and it makes an echo. So you get, hello, 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 like this, okay? So why, what are the sages trying to teach? What does it mean that when God spoke at Mount Sinai, there was no echo? Because there is nothing that isn't an aspect of God, So in other words, God's voice could not hit something that isn't Him or an aspect of Him. And so there was no echo. There was nothing to bounce off because there is no power other than God. There is no reality or presence other than God in the world. The whole world is made out of God. That's the Lubavitcher Rebbe. That's what he says. So, so now, now let me add something else. Which is that when Hashem commanded Adam to name all the animals and, and, and name just everything like this, how, how did he go about it? So, what, did he just kind, of, just, kind of, just kind of tap his finger against his head and go, that's, I don't know, cow, yeah, that's cow. You know, just, like what was he? He was just incredibly inspired. So, so, according to the deeper sources, this is what happened. Since our tradition is, is that God looked into the Torah, and He made the world out of the Torah, and that He made the world out of the Hebrew letters, and if you want to understand each letter as in different energy wavelength, however you want to understand it, and He combined the various energies to make the world, however we're to understand this. But nonetheless, God made the world out of the letters, and that Adam, since the world was so pure, this was before he ate from the, the tree of knowledge, the eight Sadas, he was able to actually see the spiritual components of every single thing in the world. So, for instance, he could look at a tree. A tree in Hebrew is eights, right? So he could see the ayin energy and the tzadi energy. And he was able to actually read the energies in everything and that's how he was able to name them. He just, he just read them, essentially. So, so now, it says that at the time 
at the time that we accepted the Torah, that we actually returned back to the level of Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, before they ate from the tree of knowledge. So now, now, what is it that we're seeing? We're seeing the letters. When we worship the golden calf, we lost that level. Now let's go back to the original teaching. The world became more hidden over, more concealed. So in other words, it's, we couldn't, if we had reached that level again, we could see the fact that the entire world was made out of the Torah. It's not, what does it mean that, that we saw letters that were made out of air? I think that it's saying a couple of things. One is that we saw that the entire world was made out of the Torah. But we also saw simultaneously that that level was leaving us. Because the letters were ascending back up. In other words, the world was re-entering this state of concealment, like after we ate from the tree of knowledge, after we worshipped the golden calf. There are many, many parallels between those two events, by the way. The world entered into another stage of reconcealment, if you will. But we had been on the level where we were able to see that the entire world was made out of the Torah, out of all the Hebrew letters. Which is, on some level, invisible to the eye, but if you're able to actually see the substance of reality itself, you could actually see those things. And then it flew back up, because we dropped in spirituality and concealment came back into the world. And so it was also a reminder to us to do tshuva. Because when we saw the loss that was happening in front of us, then it was a call for us to return back to that level where we could see it again. We saw in front of our eyes what we were losing. Okay. So, so I want to say, uh, just continue on. And I said that we were going to discuss this idea. Oh, let me, one more idea beforehand from the Haftorah, um, from the Haftorah of uh, Parshish Mitzar. I just noticed something and I, I thought it was just worth, worth mentioning. It's, it's, it's kind of in the middle of this, this story, this amazing story. I'm just going to say it over in, in shorthand. This is from a, uh, Malachim Bey, uh, the, the Book of Kings 2, 7, 3 through 20. Um, a, a very, very interesting uh, chapter in our history. Basically what happened, and I'm just sh- shorthanding it again, was that God did this massive miracle. Um, the way armies would attack uh, uh, in, in, back in the ancient days was basically they would lay a siege to the city. That's what it was called. And what they would do is, a lot of cities would, um, they, they were in walled uh, fortresses, basically. And um, that was a form of protection. And even if they weren't, the, the attacking army would surround the city, cut off all supplies going into the city, and basically they would starve the city to death. And when the people had become very, very weak, the, the, the people would either surrender at a certain point, or they'd be so weak they couldn't fight, and then they'd go in and just finish them off. Makes sense. It's, that, was, that was a very um, standard form of warfare. So in this, in this chapter in our history, that's what was going on. The Jewish people were being attacked, 
and there was a siege around the city, and it had been going on for a while, and basically we were starving. There was a, a famine, and it just was, wasn't happening, you know? And Hashem made this incredible miracle. It's funny because there's a similar miracle that's reported that God did in the 1948 war. I'll mention that in a second, but, but what happened here was God made this thunderous noise and, and this, um, this army that was, that was laying siege to us thought that we had made this secret deal um, with the Hittites and the Egyptian kings and that they were bringing in their armies and, and the, the uh, Arami army who was laying siege to us heard this massive, you know, sound of, of, of cavalry coming. Like 100,000 cavalry, a huge amount. Huge! And they thought, we're about to be wiped out, and they just hightailed it. And there was nothing. There was nothing going on. There was no one coming. There were no deals made. But this massive army, laying siege to us, left all of their food behind, all of their horses behind, all their donkeys behind, all their tents behind, all their supplies, everything, their money, every, they just ran for their lives. Now, by the way, if you look, there's a chapter in the 1948 war where the, some of the Arabs who were attacking heard this massive sound um, of, the, of these mortar shells. And they thought that we had like this super weapon, maybe even a nuclear bomb. Because remember, that was just a few years ago that, that, that America had dropped the first one. And when they heard that, they, they ran. And again, it just, it wasn't, uh, it, it was in their heads. God just put this level of fear into them. So, so anyway, the point is, is, that, is that these people with saras, this like sort of leprosy-like condition who, part of their healing is to leave the camp, so they were kind of in the middle of nowhere, so they're kind of figuring out what they should do. They don't know what they should do. And uh, here's their logic. They, this is very clear thinking. Okay? Here's what they said. They went, well, you know something? If we stay here, we're, we're, we're going to starve. And if we go back to the city, there's no food in the city. So let's go to the enemy camp. And if they kill us, they kill us. Because we're going to die anyway of starvation. But it's our only chance. If they don't, maybe they won't kill us. In which case, we'll get some food. So that's how they, they thought through all their options. And even though this was, you know, going to the enemy camp seems to be the last thing they want to do. Logically, it was their best choice. So they go to the enemy camp. And what do they see? All these supplies. There's like, there's just, there's emptiness. Now, what's sort of interesting about that is they clearly did not hear what the other people heard. Right? Because there was nothing to hear. God just put it in their head. By the way, I saw something. My, my, one of, uh, my kids brought home a, a sheet to, to read uh, at the Pesach table. Okay? With a Devar Torah on it. And here's what it said. It says that according to the Ramban, this is what the sheet said. I have to look at this inside. I want to see the Ramban's words on this. Um, but this is so for my son's, uh, my ten-year-old study sheet. He said that according to the Ramban, the biggest miracle in the Torah is that the Egyptians ran into the Red Sea to attack the Jews. Because why on earth would they ever do that? 
And it just shows you that God can put a thought into someone's head and then the person goes and does it. And that God controls the, 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 the minds of kings and, the, the, and, and their hearts. You know, because who would run into the Red Sea? So, um, so again, here you see that the attacking army heard this noise, but the people, the Jews, right, right there, didn't hear it. And so they walk and they say, wow, this is really interesting. There's nothing going on over here. It's empty. And, and so what do they do? They, they start hiding all the best stuff. They go, that's mine, and that's mine, and that's mine, and oh my goodness, and that's mine. And then all of a sudden they have this thought. They say, wait a second. There's a whole city that's dying of starvation, and look at us. We're hiding a little bit of gold here, and we're hiding like some nice clothes there. If the sun sets, and we haven't informed them of what's gone on, you know, this terrible guilt, responsibility is going to be upon us. And I think, to me, that's just as a side note. Sunrise. Okay, okay. So, so, yeah, yeah. Now, if we wait until the light of dawn, yeah, you're right. We, we will be judged as sinners. So, but what's interesting, just as a side note, is that how long do you have to do the right thing? You know, now, again, this wasn't just a basic kind of thing. There were people starving in the city. So this was on the level of Pekuach Nefesh. This was life and death. But at the same time, it's interesting because we tend to think, well, you know, I'll do it, I'll do it, I didn't get around to it today. But in their mindset, they thought, you know what, I have till X to do this. And I just think that that can be a healthy, if if a person can do it and not guilt themselves out and drive themselves crazy, that that's a, a, a healthy way to approach things. You know what, let me... You know, I'm reminded of something that happened to me one time, which was one of the, as I was taking on more mitzvahs and things like that, one of the last ones that I took on was um, making sure that my clothes didn't have shotnets in them, which is a, you know, you can't have wool and linen in the same garment mixed together. And there are places that in, the, in, in all Jewish communities where you can bring your jacket, if you buy something new or whatever it is, you go and you bring it in and Obviously, if it says on the label, wool and linen, don't buy it in the store. But even if it just says all wool, there's a reasonably good chance that a lot of times those things do have shotnets in it. But they don't list it as an ingredient because it's just like the, the, the way they sew the collar in. So it's not a significant ingredient. So, I mean, they're not, the people at Hugo Boss are not rabbis. You know what I'm saying? They don't feel a need to point that out, that they're like three strands of linen in your garment. You know what I mean? But to us, that's meaningful. By the way, Hugo Boss designed the Gestapo outfits. That's why they looked so good. Did you ever notice that the Nazis looked really stylish? Hugo Boss. Look it up. Google it. Anyway, I have Hugo Boss suits, but, you know, it's just a weird fact that, that they had this, that the Nazis had this, the, the Nazis had this, like, top designer. You know what I mean? It's just weird. But anyway, that aside, that aside, so... What's that? He's been around that one? Well, I don't know if he's still alive, that guy. Probably not. I'm sure he's probably dead. But anyway, just that's who he was. You know, he was... So, um, but anyway, that aside. Um, I was sitting with someone one time, and I was... I remember we were at a pizza parlor. This guy, 
he was a few years older than me, and we were friends and everything, and he was saying something, he was going through something, and I was giving him, you know, some encouragement, some chizuk, as we say, some spiritual uplift, or trying anyway, and he just looked at me really skeptically, and he said, you know something, I'll take those words from you when you bring your jackets in to check for shotnets. And I had just done it for the first time, like two weeks before that. And I was like, oh, thank God. But what hit me was I said, I do. He said, really? (laughs) And what hit me was, and again, this is just how I process this. You can, you know, make what you like of this story. But I thought to myself, you know, there was a certain clock on me keeping that mitzvah. You know? And I got in right under the wire on that one. <laughs> now, I can't point to any source where it says each person has a clock on, on, on a certain observance. And I'm not trying to make anyone crazy or anything like that. But it's just interesting that they said, if we don't tell the people in the city by the time the sun comes up, we're going to be guilty. You know? Just interesting to think about. So... So here's really the point that I'm trying to make. So what do they do? They turn around and they go to the city and they say, hey, look, there's all this food. You guys are starving. They're all gone. All the food's there. Go get the food. And the guards are like, what? You know, this doesn't sound right. So they they tell the king. And here's what the king says. This is the reason why I'm bringing up the whole thing. The king says, ah, uh uh-huh, uh-huh. You know what this is? It's a trap. It's a trap. They're hiding. And we're going to come out of the city, you know, which is all sealed off. We're going to come out, and then they're going to jump out, and they're going to capture us all alive, and they're going to be able to come right into the city. Right? Now, what's the point? Did he say the right thing, or did he say the wrong thing? And then, by the way, so what does he do? He sends, he goes, well, let's check it out just to make sure it's real. And then they send some horses over there. They see that it's really real and then everyone goes and there's like a big stampede and they all get the food and that's the end of the story. There's a happy end to the story. However, I thought to myself, did the king say the right thing or did he say the wrong thing? Well, I think he said the right thing because maybe it really was a trap and he didn't know better at that time. He didn't know better. And why shouldn't he think that it's a trap? Because he didn't hear the thunderous sounds of, you know, horses and cavalry coming in. So what he said was a responsible thing for a leader, a top general to say. Sounds like a trap. Let's investigate it further. Okay, so, so there's nothing wrong with what he said. However, here's the point I want to make. It wasn't a trap. And a miracle, a massive miracle had been, before, been, been performed for the Jewish people And he was completely unaware of it. That's the point I'm making. In other words, how many times in our life has God made a miracle for us and we don't even know? And we're like, well, I don't know, we got to proceed. And that's not even necessarily the wrong way to approach it because we have to do what they call in the business world due diligence. Right? But at the same time, It could be that this massive miracle has been made. I'll put it another way to make it even more real. 
A man is dating a woman, or a woman is dating a man. And what's the end of the story? They're going to be married. That's the one. And it's sort of like, well, I don't know. Yes, maybe. No, maybe. Right? It's the king. It's the king saying, eh. Meanwhile, they're with the person they're going to marry. The miracle has already been done, but their eyes have not been opened to the fact that it's already done. And so they're proceeding cautiously, and it's not, it's not that they shouldn't proceed cautiously. But the point is, is that sometimes a miracle has been done for us, and we're in that environment, the miracle environment, and we don't even know it. So, you know, it's funny because the enemy hears and flees, but we're right there and we don't hear And, you know, it just boils down to, it's, I'm not assigning blame, therefore we're terrible. That, that's not the point. The point is, this is just another, 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 another aspect of the human condition. How all these things can be going on around us, and we just don't know, you know? Just, okay. So we just, you know, let's, God is good. That, that's the end of that thought. God is good. So, so let, me, um, let me just transition now to, to the main topic. <laughs> I don't know if it's the main topic anymore, but I just want to share one thing with you, which is just about humility. And uh, this is, I saw in the Agaris Haramban, it's a famous letter that the Ramban wrote to his son Nachman, and he told him, look at it once a week. And it's a short letter. You can go, you can Google the letter of the Ramban. You can read it and it will take you about like a minute to read the whole thing. He said, look at it once a week, at least. Very interesting letter. And, and uh, basically he says to him, he, he says, you've got to be humble. And that humility basically allows you to achieve Yerushamayim. So humility, and then he goes further, he says, Humility is the king of all personality traits. The king. Why? Because it allows you to attain Yerushalayim. So what's Yerushalayim? Awe of heaven. The, the, the understanding in this visceral, real way that you're in the king's palace. That the entire world is the palace of the king. And if you have Yerushalayim, just every encounter, every moment is so precious. Every, everything. Everything that you have is like... Thank you, God, for this. Thank you, God, for that. Thank you, God, for giving me just breaths to, to keep me alive and eyes to see and just, just the ability to, to dwell in your palace. Right? This is Yerushalayim. And the way to attain this is through humility, says the Ramban. So he gives him practical advice. He says, he says, it's very important that when you speak with people, to speak calmly with people. Because if you speak calmly with people, that's, that's a... That's a way of preventing anger. And, and then if you, if you get anger out of your heart, it breeds humility. So, so what is humility? What is humility? So I just want to give you my understanding of it from, from what I've learned so far. And, um, and, and I, I would suggest it in the following way. I would say it's not, humility is not as it's popularly understood in contemporary society. You know, by the way, there's a famous story in the Gomorrah that, uh, that 
sages, a number of sages were sitting around, a t- seated around a table, and one of the sages said, you know something, there is no more humility in the world. Humility has left this world. And there was a silence, and one of the sages said, I'm humble. And all the other sages said, oh yeah, that's right, you're right, you're right, you are humble. Yeah, okay. There's one guy left. (laughs) And that story sounds funny to us, because I think we don't understand what humility is. Because we, we confuse humility with what I would suggest is false modesty. Humility and false modesty are two different things, but we in contemporary society lump them together. Let me explain. Imagine someone is a great basketball player, someone like Kobe Bryant, say. And this is what we think humility is, okay? I think for the most part. And you go up to Kobe Bryant and you say, you are an amazing basketball player. You're like the best. And now we would ima- now let's say he's being humble. Here's what we would imagine he would say back. No, I'm not so great. We say, oh, wow, he's so humble. But you see, that's not the Torah understanding of humility. That's what we would call lying. (laughs) Because he is great. He is great. In other words, humility means not to deny what is true. Now, it doesn't mean that, therefore, the Torah would suggest that. Kobe Bryant say, are you kidding? I'm even better than you think. Or, that's right, I'm great. That, no, no, no. How one responds, we're not discussing right now. We're not discussing how one would respond. We're just trying to isolate the trait itself. Humility doesn't mean to all of us, every single person has been granted a gift. Or gifts, multiple gifts. Every single person in the world. And, and, and what we need to advance the gu'ula. Because every single one of us is playing a role in the arrival and the fixing and the redemption of the entire world. And all of us have been given key traits in order to do that. Now you see, what happens is, is that we get a little bit confused, because, you see, <clears throat> you see, some of our traits are more public than, 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 than other of our traits, than other people's traits. So, for instance, let me just, just to just to give you an example of what I'm talking about. Imagine someone has to run a long distance in order to perform a great act. And this is like, he, this person's the hero, right? Wow, he's the one who ran and, you know, avoided all the bullet fire and got to that place and delivered the message. And then, and then the other army was able to win because he was able to risk his life and do that. So he's the great hero, right? But what if that person, again, just to... Just to make up an example, but just to give you something to have in mind. Let's say that person had this thorn in his foot, or this terrible splinter in his foot, and he couldn't run with that splinter. And then someone was able to take the splinter out of his foot. Right? So who's the hero? Who's the hero? Is it the person who ran? Or is it the person who was able to make it so that the person could run? Because if the person hadn't taken the splinter out, the other person couldn't have run. So who's the hero? So the answer is they're both the heroes. They're both the heroes. But some of us are given skills and gifts which are like on the level of removing the splinter. Meaning to say it's not a limelight position. 
It's not something that necessarily makes the papers or is like on the front, you know, is like on the cover of people. But it's in no less advancing the fixing and the redemption of the entire world. And all of us, every single one of us, has this gift. Every single one of us. It's just a question of, you know, in contemporary society, some things are going to be more celebrated than others. But that's, that's contemporary, contemporary society's problem. That's not, it doesn't mean that anyone is any less an essential element in, in saving and fixing the entire world. So, so let's all recognize that we all have that, that we all have not a crucial role, but we all have the crucial role to play. Do you understand? Because it doesn't get done without all of us doing our thing. The pieces don't come together unless each one of us does our thing. So, so all of us are, are necessary. Necessary. It doesn't happen otherwise. Alright, so, so the first thing that we have to do is acknowledge the fact that we have this gift and not to say, oh no, I don't have it. Because humility doesn't mean to deny that you have the gift. You have to first acknowledge to yourself anyway. I'm not talking about in conversation right now. But to yourself, you have to acknowledge that you have that gift. The next thing that, as I understand humility in the Torah, is to understand that that gift has been given to you to use it to help other people. You have that gift for other people. Now, obviously, if, you know, let's say someone is a gifted financier and they're able to make money, they have, just have a talent that they know what stock to pick and, oh yeah, you just put your funds over there and then overseas and blah, 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 and next thing you know, you got a lot of money. You know, and they, people's brains are just wired like that. There are people who just, they just know how to do it. And so you say, well, you've been given this gift for other people, so therefore... You should not, I don't want to see you, I don't want to see you at Pat's. I don't want to see you eating out for dinner. No, no, let them, they, it doesn't mean they can't use the money that they're making. Let them enjoy that. But they have to understand that, that, that primarily they have it to help the world. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't benefit it from it themselves. They certainly should. But it's been given to benefit the world. The next stage, and now we're getting to a much deeper stage, Right? is for people to understand that it doesn't belong to them. It's not even theirs. You know? And this is now already the level of Moshe Rabbeinu, who's called the most humble person in the entire world. He, you know, there's a medrash, an incredible medrash, that after he got... You see, I'll tell you something. We should know this for our life, because it's a little bit... Unless you're taught this, there's a good chance it will never occur to you. But once you hear it, you'll go, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. You see, we have the test before the test, the test itself, and then there's the test after the test. See, a lot of us think the test ends once we hopefully pass the test. But there's also another stage, which is the test after the test. You see? So I'll give you an example. So the Medrash says that the Sutton came up to Moshe Rabbeinu after he got the Torah. And, and the Sutton said to Moshe, Oh, so you brought down the Torah from heaven. Which Moshe had done, by the way. And Moshe said, What are you talking about? 
I don't even know what you're talking about. I, I did that. And yeah, your Torah, yeah, yeah, you, you know, you did it. It was you. It was all you. So in other words, what, what was being tested here, and then Moshe just kept on refuting it, and then it says, and then because of that, the Torah is called after Moshe. That's why it's called Torah Moshe. Because he didn't take any credit for it. Now Moshe obviously knew that he had done it. He wasn't denying the fact that he'd done it. He knew that he, he did it. But what the Sutton was trying to get Moshe to do was to, infu- to get Moshe to infuse his ego into this accomplishment. See, the whole thing is, it says that there are prophets. Why is Moshe considered the greatest prophet ever? Because it says all the other prophets saw Hashem through a, a cloudy lens, whereas Moshe saw him, and no one sees the entirety of God, but, but that Moshe saw him through a clear lens. Meaning to say that there was no aspect of his own personality or ego that, that entered into the text of the Torah at all. Whereas with the other prophets, it says that um, uh, Yeshaya, Isaiah, uh, ministered to um, the king of Israel in the palace of the king. So it says that his, the Gomorrah says that his prophecies have a regal, a regal aspect to their descriptions. So what does that mean on some point? And that Yechezkel, Ezekiel, his have much more earthy imagery because he was a person who, did, who wasn't in the palace of the king. What is that saying? That's saying that to a certain extent, that the prophets infused their own personality on some level, on some small level, onto the prophecies themselves because they had to communicate them. So how do they communicate them except filtering it through their own personality on some level? So that's what it is through a cloudy lens. But Moshe saw through a clear lens. An aspect of that is that there was no personality of his own that entered into the Torah. It was completely clear. It was only God. So when the Sutton comes up to Moshe afterwards and says, you did it. It's you, you did it. You, 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 you pulled it off. Moshe's like, what are you talking about? You see, that was the moment. That's the test after the test where Moshe could have taken credit and thereby infused his own ego and personality onto the Torah itself. And you'll see in your own life, there will be a moment where after the fact, you'll get the test after the test. Where you'll have the moment to go, yeah, I pulled that off. When what you were talking, what did you do? You just did the most selfless, beautiful thing you ever did in your life. And then someone gives you the opportunity to all of a sudden rage with your own ego about it. Wow, man, you did it! And then, what are you going to say? What are you going to say? Yeah, I really did. I was awesome. You don't even know the half of it. <laughs> or, you know, again, but not to deny you did what you did, because that's lying. That's not humility. Humility is like, you know, they say that... Moshe's level was he thought if someone else had had these gifts, that person could have done it even better. Right? So to realize that, to realize that, you know something, this gift that I have, it doesn't even belong to me. It's just God's. Now that's a very profound level. That's a very, very profound level of, of humility. 
You know, like, and I'll tell you something. In giving tzedakah, there's, there's a way to give tzedakah. And I was privileged to experience this, so I'll just tell you from my, my, my own life. Um, one time, you know, I was able to give someone something. And, and the way I experienced it in the moment was, let's say I gave someone a banana, right? Someone on the street, you know. And I just stood there and I, I just watched God give that person a banana. And I thanked God for feeding that person. Right? In other words, I, I wasn't there. It, it, it wasn't me. I wasn't there. Yeah, I knew I obviously handed it to him. You know, I'm not denying what happened. But in other words, there, there's a level where, where the gift, it's not even yours. It just belongs to God. And you just, God privileges you to be able to watch Him do something. Right? So it's like you're there and you're not there. It's like, wow, God, thank you for allowing me to watch you feed this person. You know? So, so, so Pesach is coming. It's around the corner. And, uh, you know, one of the biggest mitzvahs in the entire Torah is the Korban Pesach. To be able to bring that Pesach offering. And we can't do it unless there's a, there's a, a Beis HaMikdash, a holy temple in Jerusalem. And basically we're going to know the holy temple is the holy temple, the next one, because the Mashiach is going to come and build it. Or it's going to come down from heaven. Or it's going to come down from heaven he's going to complete it. Anyway, any way you look at it, we can still bring the Korban Pesach this year. There's still time. Nothing is hard for God. Nothing is hard for God. Nothing is hard for God. Nothing. Nothing. And it's just important that we just, you know, every time someone asks me what I'm doing for Pesach, it it hurts me. Because I have tickets to, to go to the Catskills. But I... I hate saying I'm going to the Catskills. I hate saying it. I hate it. Because I don't want to go to the Catskills. I want to go to Yerushalayim. And, and we can. We can. It's up to God. But I just think in a small way, let's just be aware in our own minds that, that, that God can do anything. Nothing is hard for God. And it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So why not this year? Okay.